a lot of these verses were very important for the Christians of those days. Because when we read them, a lot of it is theory. We're not facing persecution like those early Christians did. They needed great <clears throat> comfort. They needed to find great comfort in words with Jesus, for example, here in verse Matthew 10, 26. says, do not fear. Verse 28, do not fear. Verse 31, do not fear. In a short space of less than a minute in what he speaks, three times he says, do not fear. And that's because they were facing a world which was completely against Christians. And where they lived in Israel, the Jews were against the Christians. You know how Paul was persecuted wherever he went. And later on, <clears throat> much worse under the Romans. So the Lord gave them a preparation for it with this, these words assuring them that they were more value to God than the sparrows he had created, that the hairs on their head were numbered, that they, nobody could touch them without God's permission. This is a very important thing for us to remember. We don't know <clears throat> what is going to happen in the coming days. It may not be persecution, but a lot of Christians can live in fear of the coronavirus coming and touching them. So careful, despite all our carefulness and all our washing hands and everything, there can be an element of fear. So it's very important for us to, we're not facing persecution, but in these small areas of fear, to really trust God that the hairs on our head are numbered, that we are of more value than many sparrows, and uh, we hardly see a sparrow on the ground. I can't even remember when was the last time in my life I saw a dead sparrow on the ground. And Jesus said, if God cares so much for sparrows, how much more for you? Because not one sparrow, verse 29, will fall to the ground without your father knowing it. That's really amazing when you think of it, that all the birds, animals, God knows what is happening even to them. And he took the example of sparrows because one of those cheap, insignificant birds that don't cost anything. He said two sparrows are sold for one cent. And <clears throat> it's a great comfort for us. There's a word in <clears throat> John 7.30 which says about Jesus that the only reason they could not catch him <clears throat> was because his hour had not yet come. Not because they were not strong enough. There was a huge force of soldiers sent to capture him. But they could not catch him because his hour had not yet come. <clears throat> so we must instill this faith into all our fellow believers that if you are walking in the will of God and your only desire on earth is to do his will and complete 
the plan he made for your life when you were in your mother's womb. Nothing can touch you until your hour has come. A man who walks in the will of God and who has no ambition outside the will of God is immortal until his life's work is done. No persecution, no sickness can touch him. And and the wonderful thing is, we say, what about our children? Well, when a man is righteous, the Bible says in the book of Proverbs, the seed of the righteous is blessed. And what David said in Psalm 37, verse 25, I've never seen a righteous man forsaken by God, nor his seed begging for bread. So there is a covering over our family as well when we are righteous and upright, when we seek God's kingdom first and his righteousness in our life. Uh, All the other things we need, health and protection, we need a lot for our own children. I'm talking about physical health and protection in a time of sickness and pandemic. God cares for us. This is very, very important. You know, when you read the number of places where Jesus said, if you have faith, it will be done. And I see so many times, like when, you know, one would think that in the days, in those days, if a little boat was going across the Lake of Galilee with the storms and the waves getting into the boat, it's natural for even fishermen to fear, hey, we may drown in the middle of the lake and when Jesus woke up and stilled the storm, he didn't say, well, I understand. It's natural for you guys to fear. He never said anything like that. He said, why are you afraid? Where's your faith? It's, it's like that when Peter was looking at the waves and the wind when he was walking on the sea. Same question. Where's your faith? And I believe the Lord has to ask that question to us in many, many situations. Where is your faith? Now, you know, I've often preached that God loves us as he loved Jesus from John 17, 23. To me, that's the most important verse in the Bible for myself. And, but as I've studied that chapter, I've realized that not everybody can claim that. Because in that chapter, Jesus said in John 17, I am not praying for the world, verse 9, but for those, John 17, 9, but for those whom you gave me, and they are yours. He was praying for those 11, Judas had left, this is the last supper that he prayed this prayer. And the 11 people were sitting there who had forsaken everything to follow Jesus and whose only ambition in life was to follow Jesus and do his will, whatever the cost, willing to lay down their lives for him. To such people, he said, I want the world to know that the Father loves you folk just like he loved me. Now for a worldly Christian today, whose ambition is to make money and live a comfortable life, to claim that promise is pretty ridiculous. It may not work. You have to ask yourself, to whom did Jesus say it? 
and if I fulfill the same qualifications, then it applies to me. I have to be a disciple. And coming back to Matthew chapter 10, we read here that Jesus said, verse 34, Don't think I came to bring peace on the earth. I came to bring a sword. Many people think of Jesus only as the Prince of Peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Pursue peace with all men, without which no one will see the Lord, Hebrews 12. All that must be balanced with this verse. I did not come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. A sword that divides a man from his father, a daughter from the mother and a daughter-in-law from the mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own family. I know numerous people in India from non-Christian families who are in our churches. We have a few thousands of non-Christians in our churches converted from non-Christian homes for whom that's literally true. Their enemies are in their own family and they have to take a stand uh, against their parents in so many situations. And I think that was true for those early Christians too. And it applies to us, even if our parents call themselves Christians, etc. Yet, it is true that nobody can be a disciple unless there is a sword between him and his parents. That he does not allow his parents to tell him what he should be doing or allow his parents to interfere in the way he wants to follow the Lord or allow his wife or children to interfere in the way he wants to follow the Lord. A man cannot be my disciple unless he hates his father, mother, brother, sister, wife, children and his own life. So that's the sword that Jesus came to bring and not everybody is willing to accept it. Many people say, well, these are our loved ones. Our parents cared for us from childhood. We have to love them. And the result is all people who take that position would almost say that Jesus was too extreme and too radical in the type of things he taught. But I've seen people who take that type of stand. We must be kind and we must be good and we must be at peace. I've seen their lives are useless for the Lord. They just drift along. They sit in some church and maybe it's a good church. It's got a reputation for discipleship, but they themselves are not disciples. They just follow along, carried along with the glory of the church that is following a certain way and it's teaching in that church, but they themselves haven't come to that place of discipleship. So <clears throat> it's a very strong word. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. And if he loves father or mother more than me, verse 37, he's just not worthy of me. If you love son or daughter more than me, he's not worthy of me. And we need to really apply that to ourselves. Is there any situation in our life where I will compromise and not do what the Lord's calling me to do or to take a stand for something in my home because my parents don't like it or my wife doesn't like it or it'll affect my children or their schooling or something like that. Is there anything in my life that will prevent me from standing out and out for the Lord without any compromise, whatever the cost, whatever I may lose in terms of acceptance or anything? Then 
these promises are mine. And words like towards the end of that chapter where he says, he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Again, can every believer accept, can every believer claim that? That if somebody receives me, he's receiving Jesus Christ. And if somebody rejects me, he's rejecting Jesus Christ. It should be like that. If we are wholehearted, radical disciples who have fulfilled the conditions of discipleship, you know, it says in verse 39 of uh, taking up the cross, verse 38 of every day taking up the cross, such a person can claim it, who has brought a sword between him and his own self-life, between him and his parents and his family members and everyone else. Such a person, yeah, it's true. Such a person, whoever receives him, receives Christ. And whoever rejects him, rejects Christ. I believe that's God's will for every single person in our church. Every one of us should be like that. But I don't know whether it's true of everyone. Because they haven't fulfilled the condition of discipleship. And the another thing I want to mention here is about Jesus said, if anyone gives a cup of cold water to one of my disciples in the name of a disciple, it means you're a disciple and I want to serve you, he will not lose his reward. The reward is given by the Lord. One way in which that came home to me, 10, Matthew 10.42, was <clears throat> the gratitude that the Lord has for someone who served one of his disciples by just giving him a glass of water. I picture in my mind, in the day of rewards, the Lord calling some totally unknown person who lived 2,000 years ago, and saying, come here, I want to give you a reward. I remember 2,000 years ago, the Lord says to him, when my servant Peter was in your town, and he was really thirsty, you took a glass of water to him. And even though 2,000 years have gone by, I haven't forgotten it. That was a real challenge to me, that I should never in my life forget the little things that other people have done for me in past years. It may be in my entire life. Jesus doesn't forget things that are done small thing like a cup of water given 2,000 years earlier. I shouldn't forget anything that anybody has done for me. I'm, I must forget everything, all the good I have done. All the cups of water I've given to others and bigger things I've done, I must forget. All the sacrifices I've made, I must forget. But even the smallest little thing that someone has done for me, I must never forget. I must forget all the evil that other people have done to me, sure. I try my best to um, get it out of my mind, whatever evil other people did. But when it comes to the good that people have done, even the smallest little thing, a cup of water, I must not forget. And uh, when I meet them somewhere, I must remember, this is the man who did a small thing for me. Maybe it was a trivial little thing. But I was, in, I was thirsty and this chap came and gave me something to drink. I have sometimes written a letter to someone, uh, you know, Years later, sometimes a New Year greeting or something, and I say, I remember, brother, uh, 25 years ago, I was in your town, and I needed a ride somewhere. I couldn't get a cab, and you were very kind enough to 
drop me in your car over there. I haven't forgotten it. I try my best to obey the Lord's command and to be like Jesus here, to remember little things, because basically as human beings, we are ungrateful creatures. We easily forget the good other people have done to us, the sacrifices people have made to help us, and we remember the sacrifices we made, and we remember the evils that other people have done. That's human nature. Where to be different. Where to be the exact opposite of that, that we don't remember the evil that people have done, but we remember all the good that we've done, and we forget about all the good we have done, and we are sorry for all the evil we have done. The opposite of, you know, this is what it means to turn the world upside down. Christians turn the world upside down, or rather, turn the world right side up. A Christian is one who's upright in an upside down world. So that's another thing that's come home to me. There are many wonderful things in this chapter. That is, statement is still true in 2 Timothy 3.12 that all, A-L-L, who live godly in Christ might, no, will be persecuted. There is no might there. It's definite. Because our way of life is the exact opposite of the way of the world. The two types of persecutions that Jesus mentioned in Matthew chapter 5, he said one is, Verse 10, Matthew 5.10, persecuted for the sake of righteousness. And the second is persecuted because of our relationship with Jesus Christ and because of standing up for the Lord. So we may not face so much in the United States for standing up for the Lord, though we can face it in a little bit from other churches who oppose us for the stand we take against all Babylonian practices and systems. And uh, if you have relatives who are in those churches, they can be upset with us and something. But persecution for righteousness sake is something that can happen in an office uh, when we stand up for what is right. And I remember once in one of our ch- uh, church question answer time, somebody asked me in India, uh, Brother Zach, what do I do if I am a secretary of, in my office and my and the phone rings and the boss tells me, the call is for me, tell him I'm not here. What should I do? I, I said, well, if you pick up the phone and the chap asks for the boss, put the phone down, don't answer. And then tell your boss, sir, he'll ring, I'm sure he'll ring up again. Please ask somebody else to answer it. I, I cannot tell a lie. Well, you may suffer something as a consequence if you stand up for that. The easy way out is to do what the boss says. To tell him, uh, no, my boss is not here, even though he's sitting right in front of you. These are little things. And I found that uh, persecution is not being imprisoned and head chopped off and all that. It could be little things. That means you don't get that increment you your uh, boss would have given you. You don't get that promotion or something you lose something in the world. That is a form of persecution. It's a loss that you suffer because of righteousness. You pay your taxes, for example, righteously. Unlike other people, you can hide something. The IRS is never going to investigate every little income, bit of income you get. You can hide it easily, sure. But uh, you you gain something through that, through cheating your tax return. 
You think that little extra few dollars you get up in your bank account is going to be a blessing? I tell you, it will be a curse for you and your children. So I always teach everyone in our church, pay your complete taxes. Don't cheat the government on it. Romans chapter uh, 14, uh, 13 is very clear. We pay our taxes because governments are appointed by God. And uh, we're not here to argue about whether it's righteous or not, etc., etc. So in little things like that, I mean, there could be other things where you, in your place of work, if you're a business person, so many ways in which if you stand up for what is right, you could face opposition from other people who don't like what you're doing. In an office, everybody's doing something wrong and you stand against it. I remember in times in in India where a factory would go on strike. Everybody, they wouldn't go to work and in an unrighteous way. And one brother from our church said, no, I, I don't agree with that strike. I believe God wants me to submit to the authorities. He went to work. And uh, they tried to chase him and beat him in the office. He had to flee from room to room. Well, he was not going to be popular in that office after that. But I really appreciate the fact that he stood up for what was right. I'm not asking anybody to follow that. But I say, if I take a decision, maybe there are times when you take the, if you feel there's a risk of your being beaten up and killed by the others, then you must be wise and don't go in such situations. But it's all a question of motive. Am I willing to stand up for righteousness and suffer for it? Then God will stand by me. And God stood by that brother. And he had an experience through it, which other people who just took the easy route never got. So there are different ways in which this persecution can come. Financial loss, loss of popularity, and sometimes relatives who won't talk to us because we take a stand for something. It could be different, different ways, but we rejoice in it. Jesus said in the midst of it, rejoice, and he said, leap for joy. Yeah.